sustainability, ESG, whatever monikers you want to bring to that, whether it's climate or the way we like to think about it, in addition to climate, inclusive growth. I think that will drive a lot of portfolio evaluation and rationalization over time and will stimulate a lot of M&A activity as well. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from John Waldron, President and Chief Operating Officer of Goldman Sachs, as he pointed out one of the forces driving the recent rapid uptake in M&A activity. But as you will hear later, there are numerous other factors behind the increase in deal-making, including a growing optimism about the economic recovery. Today, our podcast features a session that took place at our recent M&A conference, held jointly and virtually with Goldman Sachs. John joined Kevin Sneeder, our firm's global managing partner, and McKinsey senior partner, Carolyn Dewar, who co-leads our CEO and board excellence work in a wide-ranging conversation on global business, leadership, and the current and future state of M&A. We hope you enjoy it. Here's Carolyn. As we dive into this session, there's no denying that the world has changed drastically since our last conference last February. Between the deadly pandemic, which has left a massive human and economic toil, climate disasters, fires around the world, calls for racial equity and justice. I mention each of these major themes and events, not just because they should matter to each of us as individuals and business leaders, but also because they will impact the very reason why we're here today the M&A space, how do transaction discussions, other conversations are being shaped by the implications of this, whether it's a broadening of stakeholder-focused capitalism, the growing debts of many countries that are influencing investments, considerations regarding the resilience of companies, all of this together is having a profound effect on the industries and the sectors you all lead. And with that, I'm thrilled to be joined today in conversation by John Waldron and Kevin Sneeder to discuss their viewpoints on the future of business and M&A. John, as many of you know, is the president and chief operating officer of the Goldman Sachs Group, is a member of the Goldman Sachs Management Committee, sits on a number of councils and, and nonprofit boards, including the U.S.-China Business Council and Big Brothers Big Sisters of New York. Kevin is the global managing partner of McKinsey & Company. He previously led our offices on the East Coast of the U.S., in the U.K. and Ireland, and in Asia. Kevin is also involved in multiple charitable and other foundations and is a trustee of the Brookings Institute. So welcome, John and Kevin. Thanks for joining us today. Kevin, maybe I'll start with you. You wrote a recent article that 2021 will be a year of transition. What are some of the key trends that global business leaders should be thinking about as they shape the future of their organizations? Well, Carolyn, it's a pleasure to be with everyone today. And uh, maybe I can start with a, a slight note of optimism after the litany of things you pointed out have occurred since we were together last February. And goodness, time does move quickly. But one of the things that caught my eye today was some data that came out that said that the number of startup applications in the United States was up by over 24 percent versus 2019. So 2020 up by 24%. And the number that were related to employer permits and applications was up by 15.5%. I mention that because one of the trends that I think we're going to be seeing in this moment in time is a remarkable amount of innovation. And that that's the innovation that bridges between what we've all been living through in this pandemic and the other side of the pandemic in our next normal. Underpinning that innovation or what the innovation will target will, of course, be fairly fundamental shifts in consumer behavior, shifts that are not easily reversed 
obvious ones around digitization of all that moves. When it comes to business leaders, we have to look behind the business to consumer aspects of digitization and realize that organizations have been rapidly embarking on a journey to digitize their core processes. That trend and the impact of that trend is yet to be fully seen because the investment's been occurring, the digitization's ongoing, but all that we talked about before this pandemic about the automation of work, the future of work, the need to reskill, that has been massively accelerated. And I believe we're going to see what that means. Footnote, caution, alarm bell. A lot of the ways in which we thought people would be reskilled and the transition jobs they would undertake were in the services sector or retail, hospitality. Those sectors are still going to be very badly hit in 2021. So as this automation occurs, executives need to also think about what are they going to do to help ensure that the reskilling and the assumptions we all had about maintaining a cohesive society because people would have jobs to go to as they transition into a more automated world. Those assumptions are challenged. I think that's a trend that we really need to watch out for because it could be a threat. I could go on and on. There's many others. The greening of our economies, I think now because in Europe and elsewhere, stimulus and other packages are tied to that greening and to a recovery that is more green than brown. Maybe it's a little olive because it's a mix of green and brown. But I think now we're going to see the United States also in that mode. How do business leaders deal with that trend? If I had to pick up a couple of others, healthcare and the way in which healthcare is prioritized, the amount of spending, what that means for fiscal balance sheets and all that goes with it. Again, another trend that business leaders are going to have to grapple with. And lastly, I think we can get into the whole topic about what's going to happen to portfolios. John, you'll probably live this even more than we do. But there is this real reckoning around the portfolio that I had going into this pandemic. How does it fit with what I need coming out of the pandemic? Small differences in portfolio will make big differences in resilience and how people will fare. I think as business leaders, really understanding how your portfolio is impacted and acting accordingly is a big part of the forces at work that really will underpin what we see on the other side of the pandemic. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Kevin. And John, I know I know you're talking to a lot of CEOs. How would you characterize the overall kind of CEO confidence, the business sentiment right now, especially with market and financial conditions? First, I would echo Kevin's sentiment. And I also want to be optimistic and take a kind of a more positive tone because I think we're about to see an unleashing of the global economy, it will not be great for everybody. And I think one of the issues societally we're all going to face is it's going to, it's going to feel a little bit uneven and maybe benefit certain elements of the economy over others, those that are more on the digital innovation wave that Kevin just articulated. I would say the CEO community, and I'm actually in Texas right now meeting with a bunch of CEOs and have been on the road for the last handful of weeks, seeing clients for the first time in a while, there's a real sense of optimism. You know, I think it's hard to paint it with all one brush. Obviously, if you're in the travel sector or in the aerospace sector, you're still feeling significant pain and suffering of the pandemic. But broadly speaking, if I had to take a general view, it's, it's a much more optimistic tone. The economy has proven to be much more resilient than I think many of us would have predicted in, in the spring and summer of 2020. You can see growth ahead that I think is gonna be much more pronounced. And I believe a lot of productivity gain along with that, which will come out of the innovation that Kevin spoke about, then CEOs feel and see that. And I think we're, we're seeing it in the M&A dialogues. M&A is a very good indicator of CEO confidence. I wish we could come up with a graph of actual the, the correlation because it would be, I think, close to one-to-one. And right now, our M&A business has really never been better, which is an odd thing to say in light of the fact that we're still in a pandemic. And when we sat together March, April, May at our firm, 
we were very worried about our M&A business because it seemed as though economic activity was really grinding to a halt. And how could you possibly have the confidence to go forward and, and do things strategically? I couldn't agree more with what Kevin said. I think there's a lot of a reevaluation of the portfolio that you had coming in and what you want to have coming out. There's an enhanced view that scale really matters. Having a more diversified, scaled operation to withstand the shocks that invariably are coming along and uh, seemingly more, you know, more often in greater proportion. That scale is really, I think, resonating in, in the minds of many CEOs in terms of wanting to do more portfolio work to make sure that they have the size and scale and breadth that they need coming into this next wave of growth and, uh, and innovation in the economy. And obviously, the second big driver is really technology, digital transformation, getting ahead of the curve in whatever the business that you're in, understanding how to use automation, where are you on the cloud transformation, and we all know the different components of that. And I think a third big driver, which isn't as obvious in terms of the transactions you're seeing right now, but I think will become more obvious, is sustainability. And so I think sustainability, ESG, whatever monikers you want to bring to that, whether it's climate or the way we like to think about it, in addition to climate, inclusive growth, I think that will drive a lot of portfolio evaluation and rationalization over time and will stimulate a lot of M&A activity as well. So we're pretty bullish on the forward for M&A, which is an indicator of CEO confidence. Uh, and the capital markets continue to be very compliant in, in the willingness and desire to finance that M&A going forward. So I take a very constructive view on it. That's super. Maybe picking up on the last piece you were raising around climate and broader stakeholder and for both Kevin and John, you know, to what extent have you seen kind of stakeholder capitalism, the consideration of all of the different impacts playing as a CEO level priority? How are you seeing that show up, especially maybe then as you think about M&A decisions and, and how that's impacted? I think that there's no question that if you're a CEO today, you have to be thinking about your broad stakeholders differently than you were five and 10 years ago. And I think it's only going to accelerate from here. So, you know, the, the narrative in our broader society around the world is much more about climate, obviously, and about inclusive growth, but also about wealth disparity, racial equity. And, and I think the pandemic is really, is really going to be a major catalyst for more focus and attention on all those areas. The, the pandemic has been kind of Darwinian in its impact in the world. And so those of us that have capital and have resources have actually generally done pretty well through this period. Those that are more in the labor force and don't have those capital or that, that deep resource, obviously less well. The older, the more infirmed, those in underserved communities have really in large part been decimated by this pandemic. So that's forcing a real reevaluation for society. And if you're a CEO, you have to be attuned to that. You have to be attuned to what's going on from a climate standpoint and from a societal standpoint in terms of wealth. Your stakeholders are going to demand it. Your employees are going to demand it. You know, for Goldman Sachs, much like McKinsey, our employee base is very, very young. It skews to, to the next generation, the younger generation. They're not interested in revenues and profits as the only driver of, of whether Goldman Sachs is successful in the world. They're interested in all the other things we're doing as a component of our reason for being. So, you know, we're going to have to be mindful of that. And our clients obviously are very mindful of that. I mean, one of the things which I think just to build in John's observation, which has made this a stakeholder capitalism moment, uh, is if you think about the disparity in the way in which different businesses have been impacted. So I remember sitting down with a CEO of a large European airline, and he said to me they'd had a good month because their negative revenue was only 90%. And I went, what's this negative revenue thing? All the metrics that CEOs were using have suddenly become more complicated or actually more clear in some sense, which is you've had this moment in time 
when CEOs have actually, I think, right at the beginning of the pandemic, shifted to really looking after how safe is everybody, all their colleagues, how much have we been able to look after our customers? Because remember, CEOs right in the beginning of this pandemic were funding customers who'd hit hard times quite often. And thirdly, how do they manage the cash in the business? So all the traditional metrics got displaced anyway, and people shifted. And in that moment, I think there was a recognition that, hold on, some of the traditional, very narrowly focused metrics we've been using are not going to carry us through this pandemic, nor should we expect they're going to carry us through the other side of an experience that the whole of society has just undertaken. And it's why I think many CEOs in this moment have actually been the people that have emerged with more trust, not less trust. It's very interesting to look at some of the trust indices and to see the way in which it's actually been business leaders that have been relied upon by their employees to look after them. So this has been a moment when business leaders have stepped up. And in that moment, I think there's also a recognition that's not going to change anytime soon. And if you add to it the whole environmental pressures, but the S and the G aspects as well, I think we are in a moment where Adam Smith was right in 1759, when in the theory of moral sentiment, his finest work written while he was the Regius Professor of Philosophy at Glasgow University, he said very clearly, it is sensible for the business person to know that their own little interest is connected with the interest of society. We're actually back to the founder of capitalism in many regards, reminding us of the connections with society as a whole. That's the experience we've lived through. And I don't think that's going to change on the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, Caroline, I agree wholeheartedly with Kevin's comment. If you think about the two major issues of our time right now, one is the pandemic and the risk of future pandemics and how we deal with them. And the second is climate. They're both about societal connection and the global, you know, we, we, it's all, we can't deal with the virus or the climate with having three countries do it and everybody else ignore it. It all has to be an ecosystem. And I think that's dawning on everybody more every day. And if you're a CEO, you, you can't escape the fact that that's the reality you're living in. Given that shift that in many ways leaders and CEOs have been thrust into, but I know some of them are now really thinking about what is this reimagined approach to leadership? And is there some of that we actually want to take forward, right? It wasn't just for the pandemic. It's actually how we'll operate. Kevin, I know you've spent some time thinking about that. What what kind of leadership qualities have you seen really come to the fore? How are, how are people reimagining their role? Oh, Carolyn, you should really answer this. You're the expert in this topic, but I'll, I'll play, I'll pretend. Um, you, know, you know, a few observations, and I would summarize it as microscopes, telescopes, and Valentine's Day. I think leaders have always had to have this ability to really drill down and understand what's going on. The problem is that the traditional ways of doing that haven't worked so well. Uh, so we've gone through a period of time, and I think we even talked about this last year, where in many respects, forecasts and planning is out and dashboards are in because you're trying to constantly evaluate how are things moving. And so CEOs, I think, and others have been compiling dashboards so they can just spot the trends. And that's obviously amplified by the use of data analytics and the many tools that have come to the fore in the middle of the pandemic to figure out what's going on and how rapidly are things evolving. At the same time, the second part of it is there will be an end to this pandemic. We all have differing views of when that is, uh, but let's say it is September and sometime thereafter for at least some part of this experience to move to a different phase. In that moment, we've all got to right now be getting the telescopes out and looking at this future. What's the future going to be? And how do we shape the business, the portfolio, and take the actions now that set the businesses we, have, we all lead up for success in this post-pandemic moment? Because it will come. And those who are acting now have already made some pretty bold decisions, which is why I think you're seeing the m activity. And the last part is Valentine's Day. This has been a period of time when empathy 
and the ability to relate to colleagues really matters. As one CEO put it to me, you know, what I'm really struggling to do and what I know I need to do is show some love. It's not necessarily the core part of the CEO job description, but showing some love has actually been a big part of what I think has differentiated leadership in this moment. Those who are able to empathize, understand, relate, and then do things about it have been the ones that I think we've all been celebrating. And so I think this moment in time where you've got the microscope, the telescope, and a bit of a Valentine's Day mindset out there, that's part of what I think leadership has required in very turbulent times. John, on a broad picture, do you see scale-ups continuing on their own and becoming powerhouses, or do you think they'll be acquired early as part of the capabilities build-up? It's a really good question. I think one of the things we're struggling with is how to marshal all the private capital that exists in the world. And there's more private capital in the world than ever before with all the stimulus that's been put forth. How do we marshal that private capital into the new technologies, the emerging technologies that will allow for a more sustainable world? And we, you, know, you can kind of see in front of you all the opportunities, but these are long dated NPV projects in many cases. So you have to have a view as to where you, know, where you can get returns over time as opposed to where you can get returns in six minutes. And right now we're a little bit in a world of, you know, I like to make it in six minutes. So I'm a little worried there's a mismatch between the capital and the expectations on returns. Everybody's got a desire to do the right things, but it's going to be hard to match those, you know, those two things up and create equilibrium. I think there will be a bunch of scale-ups, but I think there'll be, there'll be a lot of M&A, I believe. You know, I think if you're an established company, either in the fossil fuel world, where you've got an obvious challenge, or in the other you know, parts of the economy where you have to find a way to be more sustainable and create more transition, the question is, how much of that can you do with long-dated NPV projects, and how much of that can you do strategically through M&A, and how do you make yourself more sustainable when your shareholders are asking for it? a quarter, two quarters, three quarters out, not five years out. So there's going to be a lot of long dated promising, but the question is what, what will happen you know, in, the, in, the, in the investable timeframe that most companies are held to account for if they're in the public domain. So I think there'll be, there's not, a, there's not a right or wrong answer. I don't think there'll be one or another approach. I think they're going to see a multiplicity of approaches. And I think the thing that we're really trying to figure out how to be a force for good on is creating more metrics and more of a, an ability to create the disclosure and the transparency that investors, public or private, can invest behind. There's no EBITDA for sustainability. You know, there's, no, there's, there's, very, there's an alphabet soup out there right now that if you want to put capital against, it's very hard to understand how you're measuring the return in that regard. And so I think some of the calls for more disclosure and transparency from Larry Fink and others are, are right calls, but it's easier said than done. There's going to be a lot of work and a lot of heavy lifting ahead. Kevin, do you want to build on as well as you think you see organizations? How are they emerging even stronger out of all of this? Well, I think there's an awful lot of attention being paid by executives to either I'm a negative person or I'm a positive. And the reality is you've got to be ready for both. We don't know. And the reality that many understand is no one is safe until everyone is safe. It is like the environment and it's a tragedy of the commons kind of situation. And what that means is I actually think people will over-index in either direction. My own view is there needs to be a lot more effort that's put into understanding what the positive scenarios look like and being ready for those. I feel there's quite a bit of inertia still and that people are hanging in there, "Eh, you know, it's not going to quite change. And in that moment, I worry that those who hang on to the way it was will actually emerge much weaker because they will miss the reality that if this healthcare-induced crisis has a solution to the healthcare component of that crisis, 
things can move pretty quickly and we'll get surprised by how they move. And I think that possibility is not yet fully recognized by enough CEOs in enough parts of the world. I happen to think in the US it's different than in other parts of the world where in effect businesses are being paid to preserve the way things are today and therefore are much less ready for the change that will occur post this pandemic. But change will occur. And it's very important that executives have that mindset. And that's what I worry about most. It's why I believe the m and uptick is happening. It's why I believe there is a real risk that some parts of the world will miss what's going on and have sought to preserve what they had rather than recognize, wait, going back, it's going to be very different on the other side of this pandemic. We've had our societal hats on and our CEO hats on a lot in this conversation. What if we shift gears a little bit, kind of put our M&A specific hats on? John, how, how should M&A leaders be weighing up all of these considerations? What should it mean for them? Well, I imagine if you're running an M&A operation at any corporation, no matter what business you're in, is where are you on the technology transformation? Do you have enough engineering talent? Do you have enough platform development capability. You know, if you're in an industrial business, is your supply chain automated the way you want to have it? But I think the the question is, do you have enough technology capability to secure your technology future? Do you have that? And if you don't have that, what are you doing about it? And I think most companies, when they're really honest with themselves, are worried that they don't have what they need, given what Kevin started the conversation with, which is, which I would echo is an explosion of innovation ahead of us. So that's one major area I think is, is you know, kind of key the second major area I would say is this is an extraordinarily compliant equity market and credit market for transactions. I would dare say maybe bordering on frothy. That won't last. I hope it goes on for quite some time, but I think we all have to be rational and realize that you know this is we're not going to have I know everybody thinks we're going to have low rates forever and the Fed has said they're not going to think about thinking about lowering rates for a long time. It's not inconceivable that they change their mind. It's not inconceivable that we have a taper tantrum. It's not inconceivable that we do have higher rates or more of a yield curve if we're right that the economic unleashing is in front of us. And so, you know, if you're thinking about pricing your cost of capital as you're doing transactions, don't bake this in as a forever. You know, we've been through a lot of cycles and I don't, I, I think that we are at risk of falling into a little bit of complacency around the current environment because we are just coming out of a pandemic and there's a lot of stimulus in the system and it feels like it ought to go on for quite some time. I'm worried that that's not the case. And so I, I would be more on the balls of my feet around, around the future of capital, price of capital, and the way equities trade and the way shareholders will reward or not reward M&A. And there's more potential regulatory response around big businesses getting bigger. So to me, the forces of big businesses getting bigger are obvious. The regulatory response might be to push against that. And that's something to watch. You know, you mentioned earlier the, the idea of ecosystem, John and Kevin, I wonder as you look across the ecosystem, right, and all the, whether it's government, public sector, private sector, all of the pieces involved, any, any kind of observations or how are, you, how are you seeing this play out? It's hard to see a scenario where government doesn't make its voice heard. After all, governors become the payer, the lender, the insurer, the borrower and the owner of last resort. And so I think we are into a moment in time when for some parts of the world, it'd be how do we think about the role of government? How do we take government back out of business? And I think we can expect more government involvement. We're also in a moment in time when I think it's become very apparent that government and the way in which the private sector and social sector work together is going to be pretty fundamental. That's what we were all talking about when we were worried about reskilling and automation before the pandemic. We should be even more worried now, given the dislocations and the way in which we've already seen challenges emerge. So 
the ecosystem that we live in, this is the stakeholder capitalism point. We are going to have to find ways to make these systems work better together and hope that we don't resort to having, I think, policy take over and create conditions which actually do not help ultimately do what we all need to do, which is to create opportunities for growth and jobs and keep people in employment, but with a real healthy dose of the innovation, capitalism and the spirit that actually I think ultimately is what allows economies to recover. We could lose sight of that if we don't pay careful attention to that equilibrium has to be preserved. As we, as you kind of look across all the various pieces and think about the role that M&A may or may not play in all of this, what guidance would you have for folks who are playing those roles? I think that M&A is going to be a central part of the private sector's strategy to deal with the various elements that we've been talking about, you know, whether it's technology, innovation, sustainability, responding to the pressures of being a public company or a private company that has a desire to grow and and you know reward its owners and doing so with M&A as a central component. I think that's going to be ever more important because most companies don't have what they need to deal with these issues. These issues are complicated. But I would predict there will be a, a tug you know, and a, and a push-pull between the fact that the dynamic in the markets will push more and propel more M&A and the regulatory societal response may be pushing against it. And I don't know how to predict exactly how that will play forward, but I think that you're going to have a little, to Kevin's point, government is very, very involved in the economy, never more than than now and in the markets. And government is a, you know, is a function of voters and society and so forth for the most part. And they're going to have their own views as to what they want to see. And the combination of those two things will be, will create some tension. And I'm not smart enough to know where that's going, but I believe that will be a pretty significant amount of tension. Yeah. And I would just echo, I think the in the conversations in the boardroom that I get to join in, really there are three things going on when we're talking about M&A. One is, how do you preserve the balance between revenue growth, EBITDA growth, and the profits you retain for investment? So there's a real calculus around the role it plays from an economic model point of view for any given business. But then you very quickly get into conversations that are less about the narrow economic opportunity and more about, we need to build some capabilities, as John has said several times. That is true. And how is m going to allow us to build the capabilities in the areas where we wish to grow and develop our business? And the third thing is, and we know we've got portfolio shifts that we're going to have to get on top of. That is a reality of this pandemic. The differential trends mean there's very different impacts and small differences in portfolio. Just take a look at the way in which different, for example, consumer companies and how much exposure they had in the early part of all of this to cleaning and health-oriented products versus indulgent snacks and other products. And that, in effect, drove massive differences in their economic performance, but also their valuations, and they know that. So I think if you look across sectors, that portfolio moment will also be a big factor here. Maybe as we round out the conversation, I know we started at the beginning, you know, acknowledging all of the the shocks, both economic and humanitarian, that have really hit hit the world and will continue to do so. You know, as we look forward, maybe with an air of, of inspiration and, and optimism, right? What is something that, what's a source or two of inspiration for you in the year ahead? What are the examples or the glimmers that you're seeing that are giving you energy as we kind of go into the year? Lots. And yes, I want to be optimistic. So I'll say that right up front. But I do think the way in which business leaders have risen to this occasion and found ways to look after their colleagues, their employees, find ways to engage in their communities. Every week I publish a little note to our people and it's just story after story of what our clients are doing. 
Um, the clients early on found ways to make the masks that were in short supply and the PPE equipment, found ways to create the intubation and the other techniques to ensure respirators working when the parts in short supply, converted their manufacturing lines to make solutions to keep people clean and safe. Let's not forget that. Then you add to that the amazing ingenuity that businesses have shown. We've talked about vaccines, but let me give you one other example, door openers. I never thought that door opening was a particularly innovative area of the construction trade, but it turns out it is because people don't want to put their hand in a door and open it. They'd rather wave their hand. So all of a sudden, the door manufacturers of the world are investing in automatic door openers, technology to make that happen, elevators, how you make elevators safe, how you have changed the algorithms by which they work. I had a conversation with someone who was explaining that to me. Remarkable period of innovation and entrepreneurship that's going on there. And then lastly, the fact that business and government and social enterprises have been working together to create, for example, the distribution channels and the logistics that are getting vaccines out where we need them. Yes, there have been lots of challenges, but let's not forget that's been a massive enterprise with the logistics companies shipping stuff across the world, the manufacturers having to find ways to get the stuff chilled and stored. Let's take some inspiration from all of that. And I think in this moment when we can say with a lot of confidence, it's always darkest before the dawn and it feels pretty dark at the moment, but we can see that the dawn is coming. And I think that in this moment, I, I can see a lot of business leaders have spent a lot of time with their businesses actually getting us there. That gives me lots of optimism, Carolyn. I don't have a lot to add to that. I think it's really well said. I, I think it's the human spirit. If you had said we were going to have a pandemic and you painted the picture and you said, this is the movie script. And you said, you know, this is what humans are going to do in the middle of this pandemic. I, I you know, we might've all taken the under. I mean, the fact that we had Operation Warp Speed, put all your politics aside, that we were actually able to create a vaccine in this world uh, that fast to start to really deal with this problem, I, I think I would have taken the under on that too. And I think it's just the human spirit and the innovative, innovative ability to react and evolve, you know, with the toughest of times and challenges. I, I think we should be really heartened. And that gives me a lot of optimism that we can chew through the challenges ahead that will probably not look as difficult as what we just went through. Thank you both so much. What a, an engaging conversation and just super to talk to Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. A transcript of this podcast will be made available on the Inside the Strategy Room collection page on McKinsey.com, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of nearly 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, you can reach us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn via our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.